and I'm running for Chancellor of the United States of America. For too long, we have gone without a Chancellor who is willing to take bold leaps of faith and logic to create new possibilities for our great, big, fat nation. As your Chancellor, I will balance the budget on the head of a pin, give entertaining speeches, have scandalous affairs, write strongly worded letters to unpopular foreign leaders, Look good on camera. End all hunger, crime, abuse, war, disease, disasters, sadness, depression, oppression, repression, suppression, transgression, obsession, expression, impression, regression, and digression by signing pieces of paper that express my disapproval of such things. And invest in an American flag pin to be worn prominently on my stylish jackets. It's time to work together to take the country back from us and return it to ourselves. It's time to turn this country around and drive it into opposing traffic. It's time to take a chance on the Chancellor. This whole program is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King. You know that.
from his foes he did not hide. It's hard to think this great man is dead. The murders never cease. Are they men or are they beasts? What do they ever hope, ever hope to gain? Will my country? too late for us all and did Martin Luther King just die in vain did he sing
we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night. 
that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Speech there by uh, Martin Luther King. This is a PBS News special report. Sam Rather reporting for CBS News from New York. The Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. was shot to death by an assassin late today as he stood on a balcony in Memphis, Tennessee. Dr. King had planned to lead another civil rights march in Memphis next Monday. We got the latest on the story now from Russ Hodge, news director of WREC-TV. Good morning, everybody. This is The B. This is Labor and Love Radio. Joining you as we do every Saturday morning around 10 o'clock. With everything that's gone on, it's kind of hard to remember. Was it hard to remember that this is Martin Luther King Day weekend? That we started off our first set there. Just recent, the last one we heard was his mountaintop speech. The last speech he gave, the next day he was murdered in Memphis, Tennessee. We don't need to add, do we, that he was there uh, on a labor, a labor mission. He was there to support a strike by sanitation workers in Memphis. And uh, He was gunned down for it. So we we started off with Nina Simone singing The King of Love is Dead, her tribute to King, and then the saddest song I know, <laughs> The Sky is Crying by Gary Coleman, and finally Mr. King's speech, I've been to the mountaintop. During that speech, he said, help your brother out. Maybe he's on strike and maybe you're not. But we rise and fall together. Or put another way, Jesse Jackson. We didn't all come over on the same boat, but we're all in the same boat now. This is the B. It's the Labor and Love Show, of course. Labor and Love, Bread and Roses. Or we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the table, the negotiating table, that is, where you work, you're on the menu. And we're going to have some talk about that later. 
Never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. It's just a waste of time. Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. And where we want you to remember that, of course, they don't want you to have a union. Of course, they want to stop any kind of unity among the workers, among the working class. Your labor makes them rich. All right, what have we got for you today on this weekend where it seems that America is being held hostage by its most violent, racist forces? Of course, this is a result of that wonderful compromise. All the time through school, you hear what a wonderful thing the U.S. Constitution is. Now it's a stroke of genius and... It was an attempt to join together two opposing forces. In dialectics, we, we learn that history is made up of forces that oppose each other. Well, in this case, it was slavery, anti-slavery. It was white supremacy, unity. It was personal rights, property rights versus human rights. And in America, we've never, ever resolved that contradiction. Hence, we see what we see. Martin Luther King in 1968 was opposed by the same forces that, are, that came and ransacked the Capitol building threatened re elected representatives. Don't get me wrong. Elected representatives were, uh, were running a nation, you know, that with impoverished people, people without health plan, people, I mean, it wasn't ideal before. But in this sense, I mean, if violence is going to run our national policy of violence is going to be a force in American life, this kind of violence, this kind of mindless you know, driven by conspiracies, conspiracy theories. They're going to come after you too as a worker. They're going to come after you too as a person who believes in a multicultural society where workers have a voice in their own destiny. They'll come after you too. You're a communist or an anarchist or whatever they want to call you. By the way, the news media called these people anarchists, which is a big misuse of the term. These people are in favor of a white supremacist nation where people like them can threaten people like us and get their way. 
Okay, let's get on with the show now. Um, what have we got for you today? Well, we've got our radio labor, our world labor review. We've got a feature on Sarah Nelson. Who is Sarah Nelson, anyway? Up-and-coming labor leader. We've got labor history in two. Three versions of that. How to defund the police. This is, this is a crucial thing now. See, the, the powers that be are depending on police and military to protect them. And the police and the military are sorely fractured. Pro-Trump people who evidently now let these people, these, we don't mean rioters, whatever we call them, into the Capitol, pointed out places where they might want to go. Representative Clyburn, Nancy Pelosi, even Michael Pence, be because Pence would not do Mr. Trump's bidding and overturn an election. They were going to hang him. And if you think they wouldn't, remember what happens to people like this when they get into a mob mind, a mob mentality. They would have done it. We got labor notes talking about Bay Area transit people. Labor and Love Radio, The Labor Beat. Who is Marty Walsh, the new Labor Secretary? Okay, let's get started. Let's talk about radio labor. Put on our radio labor show. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, January 16th, 2021. I'm Mark Polanchik. In the report this week, Joe Biden to make joining a union easier, caring for care workers during the pandemic. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Don't let the delicate looks fool you, honey. Stand on ground for equal money. This is Radio Labor. In the United States, the incoming Biden administration is moving ahead with cabinet appointments, preparing for progressive labor legislation, actions to create a job-rich recovery, and tackling the pandemic and incredibly deal with an attempted fascist coup led by Donald Trump. All this while the Trump administration has been actively opposing Mr. Biden's team during the transition. 
The AFL-CIO, the largest labor federation in the United States, actively campaigned for Biden's Democratic Party. In an interview, the president of the federation, Richard Trumka, discussed recent events in the country. He mentions as one of the AFL-CIO's priorities the protecting the right to organize legislation, known as the PRO Act, which would make it easier for workers to form and join unions. I think the, the President uh, Biden has done an incredible job of uh, putting together uh, a very skilled and diverse cabinet. Not just diverse in the sense of ethnic background or race or gender, but also in the sense of economic uh, gender, economic diversity. Uh, Marty Walsh is a, an exceptional, he'll be an exceptional labor secretary for the same reason that he was an outstanding mayor. He actually carried the tools. He's a worker who came through the ranks and understand workers, I think he's going to do a, a great job. And I think you could say that about virtually every one of the picks uh, that uh, President-elect Biden has come through in his cabinet. It's the same, whether it's Pete Buttigieg at the transportation, uh, Katie Ty at the trade rep. All of those have been just outstanding picks. For us, uh, the PRO Act uh, is very, very important. Because right now you have a tremendous imbalance uh, between employers uh, and workers when it comes to power. Uh, and we're never going to uh, get wages and inequality under control unless we give workers more power. And, and the PRO Act, which is uh, the right to organize uh, act, the passage of that, uh, is very, very important. Uh, I think uh, that winning the two seats in Georgia was a, was a sea change because it will allow uh, the Chuck Schumer to control the agenda of the Senate. Uh, confirmation of the cabinet will come quicker. Confirmation of judges and other things uh, will come quicker. Uh, I think it, had it been if Mitch McConnell was still in charge, uh, he would have tried to stymie uh, the agenda just like he did to, to President Obama. Uh, and so I think for the good of the country, uh, winning those two seats was a, was a good thing for the country, and I think we'll see the agenda move forward. First thing, I think there'll be a, a bigger program to take care of uh, the, the pandemic and the economy, a stimulus program. Uh, look, you're, you're starting to see the telltale signs right now uh, of the first CARES package, the, the stimulus bill dying. Uh, you saw 140,000 jobs go away this month. Uh, you see, still seeing over a million people sign up for new unemployment benefits. So you're starting to see uh, the fact that the CARES package or the stimulus package is dead, and the second one is too small. It won't pull us out of it. So the first thing we can do is, is that. The second thing is you'll see a concentrated plan and the resources necessary uh, to attack COVID-19 uh, and get everybody vaccinated uh, and get that uh, behind us so that we can start to normalize uh, the economy again. We're at a terrible stage now. We lost uh, had a record day for people dying, over 4,000. Uh, the number of people hospitalized uh, is at a record level. Uh, the number of people contracting COVID is, uh, is at a record level. So getting that under control is important, uh, the essential thing. And that ties into the second thing, getting the economy back on track. You can't get the economy back on track unless we first take care of COVID. And then when we do that, then we have to have a proper stimulus package That'll start the economy, prime the pump, if you will, get the economy rolling. 26.1 million people are unemployed. 
COVID-19 is making the world pay attention to the really essential workers in society, such as care workers. See, Marie Ainsborough has a report. One of the consequences of the pandemic has been the highlighting of how essential workers are in the care sector, which is dominated by women. Sharon Burrow, the General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, discussed the issue in a recent webinar organized by women care workers. The ITUC is the body which represents national labor centers, such as the Canadian Labor Congress, at the world level. Ms. Burrow. The global labor market's in trouble. If you think that 60% of the global workforce is indeed working informally, you can understand the majority of those people are women. It's a sector of desperation, no rights, no minimum wages, no social protection, and of course, no secure work. And even then, when you think, oh, that's a developing country issue, think again, look around uh, your own cities and communities at the unemployed and the underemployed and what they do to struggle for a livelihood. But also look at the new and emerging um, platform businesses, the internet mediated businesses, of which care is actually at the mercy now of seeing the breaking down of secure work because of internet contracts. These businesses take no responsibility. Again, there's no guarantee, except where you have uh, statutory or nationally legislated minimum wages, and often no social protection, particularly outside of developed economies. So in that context, women work across both formal and informal, but in each category, they are in fact in care, in community services, which I associate with care. In fact, we say it's actually education, health, childcare, aged care, and community services, because in fact, this is about care. And we've seen a convergence of crisis that has made inequality where women dominate in these labor market sectors, even before COVID-19. So if you think inequality, the explosion of inequality with a hyper-globalized environment, the breakdown of the social contract then, care workers in that broad definition, predominantly women, were already becoming more unequal in terms of the labour market. If you actually then go to uh, the climate emergency, again, convergence of crisis, increases inequality, loss of lives and livelihoods has been with us from frontline victims now for more than a decade, not always recognised, the bulk of them women, and many of them caught up in care, of course, unpaid care as well as paid care. So when you then look at that global crisis and the breakdown in trust, women have been the most trusting of people because they're prepared to give to their families, their communities, their neighbours. It's kind of, uh, you know, inherently in the DNA because women bear the burden of care for their own families and therefore it translates more easily. But if you think about those crises and the convergence of those crises with massive and escalating unemployment in a breakdown in the global system, the lack of trust in democracy, then women who were the most supportive of government programs are even now less trusting of democracy and young people in particular. So then COVID-19 marches along, what a year this has been. And, uh, you know, kudos to all of you for putting lives first, but at the same time fighting for advances in the social contract, as we call it, to look after workers 
who are in lockdown or affected by uh, uh, COVID-19 or indeed frontline workers in health and services. This is Seamarie Ainsborough reporting for Radio Labour. Here with his report about union events is Labour Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labour Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggles of workers and their unions from around the world in 36 languages. Here's a small sample of their work. Our top stories section included links to coverage of the efforts being made by the American labor movement to smooth the transition to a new government in that country, the arrest of a prominent Cambodian trade unionist as the repression of trade unions, especially in the garment sector, intensifies, and the 1,000-day anniversary of the fight to win union recognition at a meatpacking plant in Turkey owned by a global food processing corporation. The emerging trend in our news coverage of unions in the global north concerns the priorities each country has or is developing for the vaccination of workers. In Canada and in the United Kingdom, for example, public transport workers and teachers are pushing hard to be amongst the first workers to get the jab, as their unions argue that they are required to come into contact with large numbers of people each day, so their safety is at greater risk than others. In the Global South, the picture is considerably different, as in most cases, the vaccination process has not begun yet. Instead, we are seeing a great many stories about how, as a slow economic recovery begins in many countries, workers are funding it as employers cut wages, reduce social benefits, and undermine the security of employment that some workers enjoyed. In several countries, the state is repressing the efforts that unions have been making to organize a response. This trend has been particularly obvious in East and Southern Africa, Bangladesh, Malaysia, and in parts of China. For our Working Women page, our volunteers found news of what the women workers who led the fight for legal abortions in Argentina have planned for the immediate future, how employers in Bangladesh are taking advantage of the pandemic to undermine the recent gains made by garment workers, and a number of stories about how women journalists are being targeted while covering protests in the United States, Turkey, Brazil, and in Hong Kong. The free health and safety newswire we offer in cooperation with Hazards Magazine carried stories detailing the workplace safety legislation changes that British unions are concerned about as the United Kingdom exits from the European Union, the ease with which COVID-19 spreads in workplaces and societies where paid sick leave and public health care are not the norm, and the continuing and intensifying mental health issues facing healthcare workers in countries hard hit by the second wave. Our current photo of the week is of Hong Kong Confederation of Trade Unions Chairperson Carol Eng, who was recently arrested along with at least 50 other democracy activists under Hong Kong's national security law. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with education workers in Jordan, where the teachers' union has been ordered dissolved by the government and where its leaders face jail terms of up to 13 years. This is Derek Blackadder from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Union Nation with Union Ladies. Don't matter. 
And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can find our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity.
Join America. I bring you greetings from the White House. Say a word, Tommy, say a word. Tell Paula White, <laughs> Trump is gone. Tell Bob Johnson, oh, Trump is gone. Somebody tell Kanye, oh, that Trump is gone. Tell Diamond and Silk, that Trump is gone. Yes, he is. Tell Ben Carson, Trump is gone. Come on here. Watch your boy stop. Trump is gone. Yes, he is. Trump is gone. Trump is gone. Yeah, way bye-bye. Trump is gone. Trump is gone. Trump is gone. Hostel away go. Trump is Gone by uh, the Comedy Quartet.
Well, we wish he was gone anyway, but his effect, the people he's emboldened, are still with us, and they're going to be with us. They've been with us as long as the U.S. has been a nation and before. U.S. from the very beginning has been a white supremacist nation. Using the language of social justice to attract workers. To get white workers to come to the land of opportunity, opportunity to work hard. make other people rich, importing Africans to do the work under slave conditions. And the U.S. has never, never, never resolved its contradictions, contradiction that made an Indian a slave, three-fifths of a person, a compromise that cut a person into parts. Three-fifths of you is a human. The other two-fifths is not. And that contradiction is still with us. Those people who stormed the Capitol believe that this is a white supremacist nation. Con razón, of course they believe it. Look at our history. Okay, so we had uh, Trump is Gone by the Comedy Quartet. And then uh, Georgia on my mind, the celebration of the victories in Georgia, as Richard Trumka said, that changes the whole game. It means that Mr. Biden's program, his pro-worker program, has a chance to succeed. Already talking about passing out $1,400. It was a close thing. I mean, a lot of workers are hung up. They're broke. I mean, how long is $1,400 going to help? How long did $600 help? We're in a social and economic system that demands that workers work in order to survive. And now there aren't jobs. What are workers supposed to do? Well, the government's passing out a little money and unemployment benefits. But as usual, the crisis is not for the ruling class. They're doing fine. 460 billionaires in our country have added $1 trillion. $1 trillion. of their wealth. 
Okay, let's see what we got here. I've been reading a lot of stuff by a man named Richard Wolff, who's a, uh, a Marxist economist. And uh, Wolff has two books uh, that I've read. He's written several. One of them is called uh, Introduction to Socialism, Introduction to, Con to Marxism. But instead of just repeating the same old uh, truths about socialism and about Marxism, Wolf analyzes the success and lack of success of regimes that call themselves socialist or communist. And uh, how they've gone so bad, how, how they've gone off track so bad. Socialism is supposed to be an improvement on capitalism. It's supposed to be uh, humanity and compassion and action. So where did these, these horrible regimes, Stalinism, fascism, uh, the regimented uh, Chinese version. And what Wolf does is he, tra he traces all these movements, which he calls social democratic, in other words, mixed situations where sometimes the state controls, buys and controls and runs industries and others where it regulates industry. But the key thing in all of this and the goal now of n the new socialism is to reform the workplace. To change the workplace so the workers have equal voice to the managers. He defines managers as people who do unproductive labor. That is, they, they control and regulate the work that productive workers do. So if you're a productive worker and you're working on a, an assembly line, the person who manages you and checks you and everything is an unproductive worker because what he's doing is basically administering your work. Okay, so Wolf locates the need for democracy in the workplace. place where, as we say on Labor and, and Real Labor and Love Radio, where the labor meets the road. We have a society that is nominally democratic, likes to call itself democratic, believes in some democratic values, but not at work. When you go into work, you lose your rights. And Wolf goes back in history and talks about the different relationships of productivity, one being the lord and the serf, one being the master and the slave, 
and one being the employer and the employee. So that's what he's talking about, changing democracy in the workplace. And this is the coming thing in socialism. This is like other socialisms have not worked because they haven't touched this relationship. The key thing is the surplus that every worker produces is taken from them. If you work, if you do $20 worth of work, work that makes your boss $20, there's no way the boss can pay you that $20. Because where does he get his profit? So maybe he pays you 12 and keeps the other eight. And of course there are expenses involved in running a business. Once those are paid and wages are paid, what's left over is that surplus wealth. And that's where wealth comes from. So Mr. Wolf is talking about changing that relationship. In other words, co-ops, where there are no bosses, but there is a group democratic, democratic process to decide where those where that surplus should go. Should it go into the pockets of a board of directors? Or should it be shared among the workers themselves after all the expenses are paid? Would workers who run a co-op move their factory to China? Would workers who work in a co-op take huge profits and give them to the rich? I don't think so. At any rate, this is the way we need to be looking, worker co-ops. And this is what needs to change if we're to achieve true democracy, true equality, true fraternity, liberty, equality, fraternity. Okay, so that's a little theoretical Marxism, socialism talk for today. And um, if you want to go ahead and pick up Richard Wolff's work, there, it's not a long, hard read. It's uh, and very well thought out and not at all an apology for the excesses of what some people call socialism. Self-critical in terms of socialism. All right, let's see what we got. I wanted to talk to you about Sarah Nelson. Um, probably some of you have heard of Sarah Nelson because when the government stopped working for a while, when the government closed down and workers were being told not to come to work, Sarah Nelson the head of the Association of Flight Attendants 
which has about 50,000 members, Sarah Nelson called for a general strike. She was saying, okay, you don't want us to come to work. We'll take control of that process and stay out. Now this is, uh, let's see, from the Financial Times, introducing Sarah Nelson. She's the new face of the U.S. labor movement, they say, female in her 40s and politically progressive, widely seen as a contender for the presidency of the AFL-CIO, which has never been headed by a woman. Collapse in demand for air travels has endangered the jobs of her union members plus tens of thousands of other aviation workers. In March, Ms. Nelson played a key role in successfully lobbying the U.S. Congress for $25 billion in aid to keep pilots and flight attendants on airline payroll. Six months ago, I guess this was written in uh, October of 2020. The speed of the COVID crisis had left the airline industry reeling. Only a month before airlines and aviation unions were at Capitol Hill pleading for aid, Delta Airlines had announced record employee profit sharing. Heading the union's communication team during United Airlines 20, 2002 bankruptcy had taught Ms. Nelson the importance of acting first rather than reacting to events. Uh, probably raise two we knew if you put forward a plan, if you don't get out in front of the crisis and put forth a plan right away, then you spend the rest of your time responding. So she gathered some policy experts, uh, some veterans of Elizabeth Warren's unsuccessful campaign for the Democratic no nomination, craft an industry aid package that put workers first. She secured support from airlines whose requests for aid had encountered lawmaker skepticism given their re recent share buybacks. And this, of course, is where a lot of the money went in the first CARES program. Companies were given money. Mnuchin is handing money to companies at very low interest. And what do they do? Instead of helping their workers as they're supposed to do, they take the money and invest it in the stock market, which is going bonkers and making a lot of people rich. Anyway. When Congress passed the U.S. CARES Act, it included $50 billion for the airline industry. The legislation specified that airlines use half the money to continue to employ workers through October 1st. A package of grants and low-interest loans known as the Payroll Support Program grew from Ms. Nelson's initial plan. While Congress had already passed the CARES Act, the union was pressuring the U.S. Treasury to speed disbursements to airlines. 
Democratic minority leader, now majority leader, Chuck Schumer called as medical workers wheeled her into the ER. I answered the phone, she says. He called to say, Sarah, we've got those agreements in place, but I don't want to sign off until I have your sign-off. So that's the last thing I did before they cooked me up, hooked me up with the EKG. He shot to national attention in 2019 during the U.S. government shutdown, as I, as I remarked. I answered in considered implausible in the U.S. for de decades. But five days later, the air traffic controllers calling in sick led to flight delays, and President Donald Trump agreed to open the government. In Financial Times, Sarah Nelson, the union boss, fighting to put workers first. And let's talk now about the rights militant and extreme mass movement. You talk about, and one of the many points that you make is that there is a... Francesca Fiorentini of AJ Plus and uh, Newsbroke talks to Bill Fletcher. Bill Fletcher, junior activist and organizer. A mass movement on the right and mm -hmm. that it has an armed wing is what you explained, and that we can't ignore it. Um, and I think we saw that mass movement on display uh, on Wednesday. Um, what are, like, maybe just tell us more about the contours as you see it of that movement, and, and we can begin to talk about how you even break it up. I think there's a lot of denial about the fact that there is even a right-wing movement. Well, you know, that's a, that is, what you just said is so incredibly important. Um, that you're right, within the left, the broad left, there really has been a denial. And in fact, as we were going into the 2020 elections uh, earlier in the year, there was still a tendency to look at the elections as between two individuals, Biden and Trump, as opposed to understanding that Trump was a stand-in for this growing monster, this right-wing populist movement, so that we were actually running against a movement. Uh, this is a movement that is very dangerous, has a long history in the United States, and has become more and more rabid over the years as they see the country changing, as the, as the grievances uh, that I would say it can be summarized in, it doesn't pay to be white anymore, uh, became more and more uh, part of what was driving this force. And or, it pays, or it pays equal to be white. Well, no, you see, well, see, the thing is, Francesca, they don't, they believe that they are be, they are the victims of what they call white genocide. It's not even just discrimination anymore. It's that th these right-wing populists and fascists are, in fact, arguing that white people are being driven out of existence. I mean, it's, it's insane. Uh, but we saw it, and we saw this armed wing uh, make its... Uh, make its uh, presence known. And one thing I want, I was listening earlier when you both were talking about what actually happened there. I think we have to be careful. They, there were elements of those fascists that seemed very disorganized. 
But then there were others that were very well armed and seemed quite intent on bringing harm to the legislators. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and I think that uh, when I, I was listening to uh, Nancy Pelosi talk on, on 60 Minutes earlier about the, the fear in the staff when these fascists came into their offices and uh, were banging on doors, I think that um, they didn't quite know, some of them didn't quite know what they were going to do when they came in, but others, I think, had an intention to whack uh, or at least, well, whack and maybe string up and string away some of these legislators. Mm -hmm. Do you, it, it, it's, it's been hard to like, I mean, the whole time, you know, to process the last four years because, um, and, and the last week is sort of a, a, a high watermark of that experience where it's like there's tremendous suffering and consequence and horror that's that is resulting from the politics of trumpism you know mm -hmm. five people four people uh died um on wednesday um uh you know that the african-american woman was attacked in los angeles um just walking by a protest um and uh you know so there's like trying to reconcile um and at the same time, they seem incredibly stupid and embarrassing. And it's right. sort of hard to synthesize, like, is it just like a super racist clown car? Or is it, you know, crystal knocked, as Arnold Schwarzenegger said today? Or is it somehow both? Like, I don't, <coughs> you know, and and then what are the, what is that, what are the implications of that analysis either way for what the strategy should be going forward? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a little bit of both, man. I, I think uh, I used uh, on an earlier interview today the reference to anarcho-fascists, and some of our anarchist friends might object to that. But I think that there really but seriously, is. Seriously, fuck those people. Well, no, look, I, I think that. Fuck you right that, back, NATO. We'll talk about anarchism another time. There are the, the, the fascists that we're dealing with. We can are, schedule a meeting to talk about anarchism, but you wouldn't make it. It's in the bonus content. Become a patron. Oh, my God, Bill, please talk. No, no, that's all right. I, see, these anarcho-fascists, they, they, the, the anarchism there is not about disorganization. It's not even about lack of leaders. It's about a sort of um, apocalyptic view of what needs to happen in order to bring about change and to simply unleash this cataclysm. And, and I think that that's what we're seeing in operation. These people are like the roaches that are under your uh, refrigerator at night. I mean, they've been there for years yes. and they are now coming out. Uh, they are not centralized, but there is a level of networking and coordination as we saw. And I think that the scarier part is that there was obviously an inside job on, on, on the 6th. There was obviously some level of cooperation on the part of some elements of the Capitol Police and the staff uh, that we're dealing with. And, and that's what makes us, I think, uh, particularly dangerous. And I think we should expect more uh, and various forms of terror from these people unless they are crushed. And that's what we have to insist. They need to be crushed. This is yeah. not about reaching across the aisle. This is not about making friends and making nice nights. 
they need to be crushed and those who have collaborated with them need to be banished. Yeah. And what what is what does them being crushed look like? Um, I think uh, one it means several things. One is uh, that they have to be prosecuted. Everyone that was, um, I mean, this is the stupidity of these clowns, right? They filmed everything that they were doing on the 6th. So, you know, identifying people is not going to be that difficult. Uh, so I think everyone that was involved in that needs to be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Uh, people have to be banned from social media. Um, I think that there needs to be, and I know our First Amendment friends are going to object to this, but I think that there's going to have to be some serious discussion about what is on social media yeah. and the ability of people to lie and foment this kind of terror in the way that this happened. Yeah. Uh, and well, so I think that that's part of what has to go down. I think that's a really good point, and it's a it's a whole separate conversation. But I do just want to mention that we have an understand we have a, a misunderstanding of the internet. Uh, we think that the internet is is just like we think that our government is a democracy, just that like we think the state is um, is neutral. Mm -hmm. That if you just put good people in there, everything will change completely without fundamentally changing the structure itself. And I think that's wrongheaded. So I wouldn't right. ever say that, you know, um, that without change, our democracy is perfect. Nor, as, just as I wouldn't say without change, our internet is somehow perfect or democracy or allows for a plural, plurality of voices. Women, people of color, especially queer people, get brutalized and, and harassed and bullied, and they have been. And you'll hear that the loudest voices who are saying that this is about free speech are always white men, straight right. white men. So let's just not get that. Dude, confused. I'm right here. <laughs> yeah, it, the name NATO Green. Yeah. But I want to just say, um, Bill, with, with all this, uh, you know, not sort of no middle ground and not working with them, I'm feeling that. Like, I'm feeling that really, really strongly. And and in the same way that I've always felt like the Democrats um, should not, that bipartisanship is overrated, um, mm -hmm. I don't think that we need to be reaching out to these people. But what, what you're seeing is there's a certain narrative right now that uh, these people were the working class. These are the disaffected, left behind, snubbed by democratic neoliberal working class. Um, even though there was a tech CEO, a son of a Brooklyn judge, a indie rocker, a like, uh, you know, uh, an elected official, like, even though they're, they definitely weren't working class, but there is such a, an, um, a drive to try and empathize with, with Trumpism as, oh, this is the working class that we've forgotten. What's your response to that, even as it comes from the left? I think it's a misanalysis. Um, that whether you're looking at the uh, Tea Party or you look at Trump's base, um, it's not the poor, it's not the white poor. It tends to be, in both cases, more people that are middle income who are feeling crushed by both the poor and the rich, who are fearing what will happen as opposed to experiencing the collapse. Um, there was this, there was a uh, in the 2016 election, there was this um, discussion that was going on in the Teamsters Union, and I was privy to this exchange where this one guy. For the who listeners who are not familiar with the labor movement, the Teamsters Union is a very uh, uh, famous union of, of people who uh, drive horse and buggies. Uh, right. <laughs> 
and and in this case, uh, it was some people from the railroad industry. And and this one guy writes to his leader, um, I'm not going to be voting uh, for Hillary Clinton. I'm going to be voting for Trump um, because I'm voting for the future of my son. Now, this was not a poor, impoverished white worker. This was not someone who was unemployed. This is someone who was making a very decent income. And he was deciding he was going to vote for his son's future on my back. That's what he was saying. And that's what we have to understand. That, that this, and this is one of the reasons that I think that this whole idea about Trump as a spokesperson for the white worker is completely missing what the reality is out there. Hey, you made it to the end of the clip. That's probably because you like left politics and comedy and me is gonna deliver. I mean, I am going to deliver more of that. So why don't you subscribe to this channel right now and you'll never miss another show again, ever. Okay, that was our uh, usual, regular. Uh, news broke. And uh, this time she had a guy named Nito, a white guy. And they were talking to Bill Fletcher, a union activist and uh, former head of the education department for AFL CIO about, well, now we can't ignore these right-wing fascists, fascists. I was looking for the term to talk about them earlier. And uh, fascist does it. Okay, I want to play something called the dignity of labor here. Something we must consider. There are more than 3.3 billion workers working to satisfy the needs and run this world. What if these billion workers stop working? Who will take place of them? An engineer or CA? Workers are the living pillars of a developing society. If we don't want to experience a doomsday, we should start respecting them today. To do so, we should not only understand but also apply the phrase dignity of labor. To understand the topic, dignity of labor, let's break down them into two parts, dignity and labor. Dignity or respect is a very obvious word to hear for a very rare value which we express. If you think deeply, respect is the way to treat everyone, not a few individuals. When we were kids, we have been taught to say thank you to those who have helped us by any means. But as we grew up, the number of times we thank people reduced. A watchman opens the gate for us to enter the premises, but we never say thank you. A rickshaw driver helps us reach our destination, but we never say thank you. A waiter serves us with a smile, but we never say thank you. 
We are not asking you to do a favor on them. We are just advising you to give them what they deserve. Imagine what if 7 billion humans would accomplish if we loved and respected each other. Even two magical words, thank you, will make a significant difference. Labor is classified into two types, manual that is physical and intellectual. Irrespective of the type, having been honored and respected, treated fairly without any superiority or inferiority is what I define as dignity of labor. <laughs> who is a labor? As soon as we hear the word labor, we visualize a low class and an uneducated person working for some wages. These labors are repeatedly insulted in front of the society. The way we respect engineers, doctors and all other eminent and highly educated personalities. We should equally respect drivers, maids, sweepers cobblers, etc. Remember, these laborers are like an iron nail on which a photo frame is hung. Everyone appreciates the photo frame, but no one even talks about the nail, which has lifted and carried the photo frame without expecting anything. Every labor deserves its self-respect. Never underestimate. Consider a domestic labor when the person unable to turn up to work. It creates a turmoil in our day's routine. This means in regular days is a labor. Makes our day goes well. Always look at the positive side, it deserves high appreciation. Okay, well this is a this is a documentary made evidently by Indian students uh, about uh, the dignity of labor. Let's see if I can translate what this lady is saying. As a teacher, I teach my children that every job is important. Hi, white collar job, Matra Madi and Allah. I create such awareness so they will appreciate the people around them who are doing the work. So often we overlook the worth and the significance of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight, that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth.
people think that the person who's appearing on the TV is the best, the most hardworking one, while the physical workers like carpenter, construction site workers, farmers and sewage cleaners are neglected to be respected at times. People turn their back on hearing their profession. The importance of the labor is often neglected. We should always know this, that the human society will not exist without doing labor. So respect them, not just because they are labors, but because they are also a part of our very own existence. Respect is not a favor or labor, it's their right. Work honors the Creator's gifts and talents received from Him. God has blessed every person with gifts. To pursue them is His choice. Always remember, the excellence of a circle lies in its roundness and not in its bigness. If we use the gifts given by God qualitatively, we can achieve beyond one's imagination. The greatest genius has been the greatest workers. The stones are turned to be castles and palaces. The wasteland to fertile land are all examples of human efforts. No matter how educated, talented, rich or cool you believe you are, how you treat people ultimately tells who you are. was a documentary called The Dignity of Labor. And it looks like it was done by some students, uh, young people, talking about the dignity of labor, not talking perhaps about overthrowing the social order that exploits labor, but being respectful to laboring people. Okay. Can't argue with that, huh? Okay, let's see. Trump is gone. We played that. How to defund the police. Okay, now this has been a very controversial phrase, defund the police. Um, some of the right-wing pundits were saying, well, in fact, one representative was saying, oh, to the Democrats, you want to defund the police? You better be happy the police were there, which of course one doesn't have anything to do with the other. Let's listen to Francesca and then we'll uh, get on. Actually defund the police, glad you asked. Okay. After exploring why the issue of police violence isn't just about good cops versus bad cops, why it's almost impossible to prosecute police due to qualified immunity, the Hollywood lie that cops spend all of their time catching dangerous criminals, and the history of law enforcement from its very racist origins through the still very racist war on drugs, we're finally here, a place of hope where we can explore what we'll do when and if we defund the police. 
But first, let's knock over one straw man argument. No one who is advocating for defunding the police actually believes that you can take money away from the police departments overnight and end up in some magical utopia with zero crime. Defunding the police is a long-term goal that works from a broader framework of divest-invest, where you take money budgeted for police and redirect it towards a variety of programs that get at the root of social harm. Why? Because reducing contact with cops, aka the people legally allowed to murder you if they think you might be a threat, will guarantee police violence does not occur. And don't just take my word for it. Decades of research show that when community-led efforts are given resources and money, they're able to prevent violence and harm just as effectively, if not more effectively, than police. So why defund the police? Well, in the words of former police officer Kyle Kazan, law enforcement is the dumping ground. When you don't know who to call, you call the cops. So who else can we call? Well, let's start with the most common way people interact with the police traffic stops. If you don't think traffic stops result in police violence, maybe try asking Sandra Bland or Samuel Du Bois. Oh wait, you can't, because the police killed Bland after she failed to use a turn signal and Du Bois dared to drive with a missing front license plate. Fortunately, data shows us we don't need gun-toting officers to deal with traffic stops. Instead of police officers, we can use more traffic cameras, which are proven to make roads safer. Or we can create programs like Highways England, a British program which hires traffic officers who are distinct from police and that they're unarmed and actually carry equipment to help with breakdowns or car trouble. Imagine a world where you have a broken taillight and government officials send someone to help you fix the taillight and create a safer road for everyone. Wild, right? Let's move on to another area where police are often undertrained and overly aggressive. Mental health. Approximately 10% of police calls involve a person with mental illness, making police the nation's de facto first responders to mental health crises, which is, surprise, a terrible idea. Because as recently as 2017, people with untreated mental illness were 16 times more likely to be killed by law enforcement, and one in four people killed by police were living with severe mental illness. Like George Zapontis, a man in Queens who was killed after police responded to a nonviolent conflict with his neighbor and tased him at least five times. Or Gay Plaque, a woman in Richmond, Virginia, who was killed by police in her own home after a doctor requested a wellness check. Fortunately, new solutions are being explored in cities like Dallas, Texas and Eugene, Oregon. In Dallas, mental health clinicians and paramedics are now being dispatched to 911 calls involving mental health emergencies. The program, called Right Care, has resulted in a 19% drop in mental health calls that end up requiring an ambulance, and fewer people arrested or apprehended by police. In Eugene, Oregon, the Cahoots program, which serves as an alternative to police involvement, sends civilian crisis intervention teams trained in mental health and de-escalation tactics in response to 911 calls involving mental health. Cahoots estimates that at least 20% of all 911 calls in Eugene are directed towards them instead of police, and they've helped resolve emergencies using non-violent, compassionate means while saving taxpayers over $15 million annually. Less horrific violence against marginalized communities and saving money in my America? Who could have guessed? Oh wait, all the people who've been calling for this for decades, like the Treatment Advocacy Center, a national nonprofit advocating for diverting people with mental illness from the criminal justice system and into appropriate treatment since 1998. The issue really boils down to budgets. 
One New York Times survey found that out of 150 cities in the U.S., police budgets have consistently risen across the board up until this year. And as federal aid for anti-poverty programs and social services dropped, the survey says local police were frequently asked to fill those gaps. The money is there, it's just not being allocated effectively. And within the movement to defund the police, how cities spend their money once they've divested from law enforcement is crucial. Because the question isn't just how do you deal with the emergency after it's happened, it's also how can you prevent the emergency by addressing the root cause. Now, before we move on, let's remind ourselves that officers only spend about 5% of their time dealing with violent crime. But for instances where violence still happens, because it likely will, there is real evidence that shows civic and community-based organizations and initiatives can build safe neighborhoods without the costs and violence that come along with police and prisons. These models include programs like Safe Streets in Baltimore and Ceasefire in Chicago, which rely on teams that include violence prevention coordinators and full-time outreach workers. They specifically help communities impacted by gun homicides and gang violence, working with young people to find work and education opportunities, as well as de-escalating potentially violent conflicts. Many of their outreach workers are former gang members or formerly incarcerated people with ties to the communities they help. Over the span of about nine years, Baltimore's Safe Streets program resulted in fewer homicides and non-fatal shootings. In the neighborhood of Cherry Hill, the program actually reduced homicide rates by 56%. But these initiatives are often given pennies on the dollar to do the kind of work that can stop cycles of harm, if they're funded by the government at all. How that money is spent matters. Programs run in conjunction with the Crime Lab at the University of Chicago are very effective and have data to back up their work. The Becoming a Man and Choose to Change programs rely on a combination of mentoring and cognitive behavioral therapy. They've reduced participants' involvement in violence by about 50%, and summer jobs programs have led to an over 40% decrease in violence. Even something as simple as creating more community gardens helps, seriously. A decades-long study in Philadelphia found that transforming vacant lots into green spaces correlated with a drop in gun assaults and a rise in healthy activity among residents. So we basically need cities to reboot Parks and Rec and put it in Law and Order's time slot. Look, we already know that 150 years of policing hasn't eradicated violent crime, and expecting new solutions to do so immediately is equally unrealistic. Defunding the police isn't actually just one idea, but an umbrella term for the many things we're going to need to try in order to create safer communities. And we'll be honest, some of these programs may not work. Sociologist Patrick Sharkey made a great point that leaders and lawmakers need a long-term commitment to building new coalitions to give them a chance. As he said in an interview with Vox, I'm calling for a 10-year commitment. Give it a chance to fail. Give it a chance to go through scandals and mishaps and bumps along the way. And know that it's still going to be there in 10 years. There's no easy way to respond to every challenge in a community. This is hard work. And it asks for the cooperation of activists, community organizers, academics, lawmakers, and regular people in answering complicated questions. And not everyone agrees on whether we need to reduce the size and scope of policing or if police need to be dismantled altogether. But beyond logistical questions, it's also going to be difficult because it's a fundamental reimagining of society. In her New York Times opinion piece, activist Miriam Kaba describes her alternative to policing and incarceration as a vision of a different society, built on cooperation instead of individualism, on mutual aid instead of self-preservation. She asks, what would the country look like if it had billions of extra dollars to spend on housing, food, and education for all? The important thing is not to let up. We've got decades of data showing us the real devastation police forces enact within our communities. 
but research also shows us there are solutions to community safety that cut off the need for police at its root by providing opportunities in education. So what have we got to lose in imagining a better future? Thanks for watching. I'm Francesca Ramsey. We'll see you next time right here on Decoded. Francesca Ramsey with a um, look at the idea of defund the police. What's behind that, that uh, slogan? Of course, some people are going to say, oh, you don't want to have any police, right? Who are you going to call in case of a murder or something? Well, as Francesca points out, that's not the case at all. That's not what people are talking about, most of them. Most people are talking about reallocating funds, so policing would end up being much safer. Okay, I want to want to work on here. Let's see. When Nixon pushed postal workers, they pushed back. This is about a strike, postal workers strike. Mail strike, March 25th, 1970, U.S. National. 1970, what started as a small worker sick-out in a Bronx branch of the U.S. Postal Service eventually expanded into a wildcat strike that caused President Richard Nixon to call in the National Guard to deliver the mail and greatly improve the working conditions for hundreds of thousands of postal workers. Strike was supported by a climate of dissent that had existed in the early 70s, a climate that the current political atmosphere mimics and provides a teachable moment for organizers in 2020. All right, so check that out on the Real News Network. Let's get to Labor History in Two. Johnny Cash today. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1968. That was the day Johnny Cash performed at Folsom Prison. The Man in Black had played numerous free prison concerts before. Country music legend Merle Haggard remembered seeing him perform at San Quentin a decade earlier. Columbia Records recorded the two concerts at Folsom for release. It was these recordings that many credit with revitalizing the career of Johnny Cash. His daughter Roseanne believes the 1968 appearance signified her father's own personal liberation, saying, quote, that was the moment he came into the light, when he embodied who he really was. Performing with the Tennessee Three, June Carter, Carl Perkins, and the Statler Brothers, Cash hit the charts with Folsom Prison Blues, which sold more than three million copies at the time. He also took the opportunity to advocate for prison reform and prisoners' rights, providing testimony on the subject in the early 1970s. His brother told the BBC in an interview, quote, he identified with the prisoners because many of them had served their sentences and had been rehabilitated in some cases, but were still kept there for the rest of their lives. He felt a great empathy for those people. Cash might not have actually shot a man in Reno, but he always sided with Hell the yeah. underdog. 
His songs highlighted the working man's life, from the sharecroppers, coal miners, and auto workers, to railroaders, truckers, and prison chain gang. Cash always gave an unromanticized view of hard living and hard labor, as well as interracial and class solidarity. I hear the train a-coming, it's rolling around a bend. And I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prison. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryintwo.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1942. That was the day that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt established the National War Labor Board under Executive Order 9017. The board was designed to mediate and settle disputes in the various defense industries. Its purpose was to prevent any strikes or lockouts that would interfere with war production. The War Labor Board consisted of 12 representatives, four each from industry, labor, and the public. It established procedures for dispute resolution and detailed the scope of grievances, arbitration, and award enforcement. The board had the authority to issue binding agreements and to recommend government seizures of plants involved in work stoppages. It instituted the Little Steel formula to allow for cost of living increases in an effort to stem inflation. In exchange for the no-strike pledge, it instituted maintenance of membership in unionized workplaces, which made union membership automatic for new hires and mandated employer collection of union dues. During the war, it imposed tens of thousands of wage dispute settlements and wage agreements. In a 1942 case against General Motors, the board mandated equal pay for equal work for women and minorities. Those critical of the board opposed the no-strike pledge and compulsory arbitration as clampdowns on labor's power and independence. They argued it was stacked with open shop advocates, enforced wage controls and freezes, and encumbered workers with endless red tape, runarounds, and delays in resolutions. Labor historian Steve Frazier notes that after the 1942 elections, pro-business appointees made union organizing efforts throughout the South and in the retail and service sectors difficult. The board ceased its functions at the end of 1935 though it set precedents for arbitration that are still in use today. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1888. That was the day novelist Edward Bellamy published his futuristic utopian novel, Looking Backward, 2000 to 1887. The protagonist, Julian West, wakes up in the year 2000 to find that industry has been nationalized and wealth, goods, and services have been equitably distributed. People work less, retire early, and enjoy greater leisure. Looking Backwards was so popular that by 1900, only Uncle Tom's Cabin and Ben-Hur had sold more copies. Bellamy's utopia solved problems of capitalism through the development of a socialistic society. Bellamy denied he was a socialist and instead referred to his vision as nationalist. The novel sparked a political movement virtually overnight. Bellamites, as they were called, formed nationalist clubs across the country. They attempted to organize a people's party around these clubs, which soon dissolved into the populist movement of the 1890s. 
Looking backwards was a response to the Gilded Age world of monopolies and trusts, depressions, and often violent class convulsions. Bellamy was quick to indict the banks, the railroads, and the corrupt political system that served them. Sociologist Arthur Lippow argues in his book that while Bellamy may have expressed anti-capitalist sentiments, his future is one in which there is no democratic public life or political process. For Lippow, Bellamy's particular collectivist view is militaristic and bureaucratic and does away with representative bodies of any kind. Socialist Party leader Eugene V. Debs credited his own political development in part to reading Looking Backwards. He noted that, regardless of whether Bellamy considered himself a socialist, his novel generated popularity and enthusiasm for socialist ideas, causes, and politics. I'm Rick Smith. About time for us to get out of here now. Labor history in two. Let's see. How are we going to go out here? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of mutiny radio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. Mutiny Radio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> As the world gets wackier and less predictable in every way, it is more important than ever for us to all remember our roots. We wouldn't be here today if our ancestors hadn't had the capacity and the skills to take care of themselves and their communities using the resources in the natural world around them and their own two hands. 
My name is Wonia Thibault of Buckskin Revolution and Alone Season 6, and I started Buckskin Revolution not just to empower people with a wider range of skills to meet their basic needs, but also to inspire them with a sense of fulfillment and connection that comes with living a little closer to the earth and using our bodies, our minds, and our very DNA for what they evolved to do, to help us thrive without the need for modern technology and industry. If that sounds appealing to you, I hope you'll join me for the Fall 2020 Buckskin Revolution Online Skills Gathering, an eight-week learning experience designed to work within any schedule. It involves pre-recorded classes, live interactive sessions, and online community learning support from both myself and your fellow students. The need for these skills has never been more pressing, and Buckskin Revolution is working hard to bring them to you. I hope you can join us. Get connected with yourself and the world around you at buckskinrevolution.com. Billy Bob, you ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience, like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Oh, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things, dude, before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! I'm Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. Join us every Sunday, 2 to 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on MutinyRadio.fm for... Let's watch a full-length movie on... YouTube. We watch the best movies that... Uh, aren't they good? Well, they're chosen by uh, Here's you. his theme song again. Bye. Okay, bye. Watch Francisco, what are you doing this week? Come join Mutiny Radio Presents for four different comedy shows supporting local businesses in the Mission District and beyond. On Sunday, join us in the Tenderloin at Resolute Wine Bar, 678 Geary for Barrel of Laughs at Resolute, an amazing comedy show with the best wines curated by Resolute. On Wednesdays, join us at Asiento at and 21st and Bryant for dinner and a show at Asiento. Delicious tapas, incredible drinks, hilarious comedy Wednesday nights at 7.30. On Fridays at 7 o'clock, join us outside mutinyradio.fm here at 21st and Florida, 7 o'clock for outdoor comedy, socially distanced in the street. 
and Saturdays. Join us at Atlas Cafe SF at 20th and Alabama for Titans of Comedy. Every Saturday at 2 o'clock. Hey, keep supporting local businesses and comedy here in San Francisco with your friends at Mutiny Radio. St. Valentine's Day Mascara, streaming live on Facebook, Sunday, February 14th, 11 a.m., an international affair hosted by Ms. Noir. Do you crave a carnal couple? Are you longing for some lecherous lines? Is it seduction from a sultry sonnet that you're seeking, or would you rather be ravaged by rhythm and rhyme? Care to venture a little voyeuristic versification with this lyrical libertine? Or could this wanton wordsmith leave you with an appetite for an allegorical adultery? Why not slake your literary lustings in a personal one-on-one? St. Valentine's Day Mascara. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. St. Valentine's Day Mascara. 14th of February 2021, 11 a.m. PST, Facebook Live. A date for everyone, hosted by Ms. Noir. The Ministry of Lava manages our national lava resources to ensure that we will always have a steady supply of lava to operate the nation's active volcanoes, which in turn power our cities and methamphetamine labs. As a matter of national security, we need to reduce our dependence on foreign lava which means an expansion of domestic lava drilling. As your chancellor, I will build lava wells all over the country, as well as secure access to more lava fields by invading Hawaii. Imagine orange gold spurting out from school playgrounds on the Great Plains and illuminating the Nebraska sky like fireworks on the 4th of July. Magma oozing over the rolling hills of Kentucky. Volcanic ash settling gently over homes in New England like fresh gray snow. If you want global lava markets to continue to be dominated by terriblest regimes like Iceland, Chile, and the Philippines, vote for my opponent, who sits in their back pocket as comfortably as Pahoehoe on the slopes of Kilauea. If you want the United States to stay competitive in the era of peak lava and beyond, then take a chance on the Chancellor. Are you looking for local handcrafted leather goods? Look no further than Skin on Skins, a local mission leather working shop. All original pieces handcrafted For you, jackets, belts, purses, jewelry, everything made out of leather. You need your bicycle seat fixed? You want it in cool leather? Under can do it. You have a motorcycle that you want to fit out with side bags and cool stuff? Talk to Under. Go to SkinOnSkins.com. That's S-K-I-N-O-N-S-K-I-N-S.com. You just went to Folsom Street Fair and you don't have enough leather? Go see Under. Everything is handcrafted and understated quality. Fine leather handcrafted goods for all of your needs. He also does fixes. Maybe you love that jacket. He'll put the zipper back in. 
Talk to Under at SkinOnSkins.com at 20th and Mission. Check them out at SkinOnSkins.com. LSD, fap, acid, fapping, fapping, acid, acid, fapping, fapping, acid, fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. What is flat black plastic? What could it be? It's exactly what you think it is. Flat black plastic. Vinyl. Records. Round. Played. Mixed. All for you every Saturday from noon to two by Scotto Walker. Amazing artist, music DJ, vinyl enthusiast. That is flat black plastic. 